Coming up on this week's show, the latest big-budget video game movie is coming. An arcade classic comes to the 32X. And we talk strategic simulations and Midway with Brian Lowe. And the Retro Hour podcast is brought to you each and every Friday with our wonderful mates at Bitmap Books. Now, this is everyone's favourite Amiga book. Commodore Amiga, a visual compendium. A real celebration of the 16-bit legendary Commodore machine, celebrating all the early titles like Defender of the Crown, Barbarian, lots more as well. Marble Madness is in there. And then those later games that we all grew up playing, Space Harrier, Rainbow Islands, Cannon Fodder, Speedball, Worms, of course, in there as well. A real celebration of the Amiga over 420 pages and bringing to life more than 140 of the biggest titles. You can check that out on the rest of their retro gaming collection right now at bitmapbooks.com. And with our friends at PCBWay. Now, they offer a fully featured custom PCB prototyping service with low-cost, fast turnaround, quality boards. So if you're working on a retro project right now, definitely worth checking them out. They also offer services like 3D printing and injection molding, and they're huge supporters of the retro community. So check out their website, get an instant quote for your project right now at PCBWay.com. Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 378, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. Me, Ravi Abbott. And me, Joe Fox. And great to have you joining us for another hour-ish of retro gaming chat, bringing you up to speed on what's been happening in the wonderful world of retro gaming and technology from over the last seven days. And of course, a veteran of the industry coming on in the second half of the podcast to share some of their memories, their time working in the industry, the incredible games that they've worked on as well. All of that coming up. And uh, of course, a very busy couple of weeks coming up now that we are uh, well and truly into summer. So I said, cutting the grass today. And my sunglasses on this afternoon. You feeling summery, boys? I've uh, planted my vegetables, so (laughs) I've been tending to the garden. I've had a chalk ice today as well. (laughs) I don't think I've I've had a chalk ice since I was a kid, but it was always, you know, when the ice cream van had come down the street and he said to you, Mom, can I have a pan for the ice cream magical? We've got chalk ices in the freezer. (laughs) So, um, yeah, it always makes me think of bad memories of not having nice ice cream back in the day, but I'm sure they're a lot nicer now, Joe. I I really Um, enjoy it. (laughs) (laughs) We have got a really busy week coming up. We're going to be out and about over the next week. Actually, uh, quite weirdly, we're all going to be at separate events over the next week. Um, starting with you this coming weekend, Joe. Sunday, you're going to be selling off uh, all of your video games collection. Is that right? Uh, not quite right. Not quite right. So I'm going to be at the Birmingham Gaming Market on uh, Sunday, the 21st of May um, at the Custard Factory, which is just outside of the Birmingham City Centre near the Bullring, um, not too far mm. from the Bullring. I'm going to be there with my friend Jason um, as Days of Thunder Gaming, which is his uh, gaming stall. Uh, I'm going to be, you know, a bit Dale Boyin, flogging games and stuff. But if you're there and you want to yep. come say hello or whatever, Come say hi. I love it. You know, it shows him up as well because he gets really embarrassed when everybody comes over and goes, you Joe. I love it a little bit as well. But yeah, I'm going to be there, you know, doing the sweet deals on Mega Drive games and stuff. And you only charge 25 quid for a selfie. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) So you're going to be there this coming weekend. I was going to make us all do the accent where we're going to be, but I I won't ask you to do a Brummie and then. Yeah, I don't want to offend all that. (laughs) (laughs) So, and you're going to be in Manchester on a Thursday next week. Yeah, yeah. We all love each other as well. We're not doing these separately because we're all angry with each other. (laughs) That's um, a good point. 
We'll go into our separate things because uh, Dan is going to be heading off actually when I'm doing this one. So um, I am going to format in Manchester, which looks like an awesome event. It's on Thursday, the 25th of May. And it's it's kind of one that I've never been to before. I I hear it's fantastic. Um, Paul Monaghan of Amiga Addict is going to be there as well. So we're going to be chatting like magazines and stuff like that. A bunch of the guys from Rare are going to be there. A bunch of the guys from Rare, yeah, having a nice drink. And it's all about the kind of nightlife movement and uh, gaming and entertainment and all of that it should be exciting manchester's a, a really happening place yeah and if, we, if you check the show notes we've got a little discount where you can get 25 percent off the ticket price for that if you want to go along i was desperate to come to that as well but i'm off to um poland to pixel heaven on friday and i check flights everywhere i just assumed you know manchester i could come to that on uh, thursday night i could get a flight in you know, on friday morning out to poland turns out the only way i could get there was actually driving Overnight, I'd have to leave at about one o'clock in the morning from Manchester to get to Stansted oh my God. for seven o'clock in the morning. So uh, that didn't sound too much fun. So unfortunately, um, I've got a missed format, but um, I am looking really excited to uh, this big event that's happening in Poland, in Warsaw next weekend, Pixel Heaven, which uh, I've been to once before as well. Really good event out there. And, uh, you know, like they always do, they've invited a load of guests out there. There's all loads, loads of great panels, a lot of partying as well. Cheap drinks in Poland. You're going to get some uh, Polish sausage, Dan? Oh, been a vegetarian probably, unless they do vegetarian sausage. They, they maybe might, they yeah. yeah. Yeah, they might. <laughs> really cool place. I love Warsaw last time I was there. And uh, I'm actually going to be on stage on Friday afternoon with David Pleasance, you know, formerly of uh, Commodore. Uh, we're going to be doing a little um, like half an hour long celebration of the Amiga CD32, which uh, actually turns 30 years old. Oh, in God. September, it makes me feel nuts. old. <laughs> yeah, that's. I remember buying a magazine and reading about that when I was a kid. Um, definitely doesn't feel thirty years ago. But if you are going to be there this weekend uh, or any of those events, come say hi. Um, you know, we, we always love meeting our audience as well. So it's uh, we're definitely approachable. Please come uh, say hi to us if you are going to be at any of these uh, events over the next week or so. And uh, of course, we'll link up everywhere we're going to be in our show notes. And there are plenty more of events coming up throughout the summer as well. Uh, if you want to come along and uh, say hi to us in person, it's always very cool. Now we have got an amazing guest on the podcast this week and uh, this one is a really interesting approach and a different angle to many games you might have heard about before obviously you know these are quite legendary titles from companies like Midway but actually concentrate a bit more on the PC side of them yeah so I did this um, solo and it's me and Brian Lowe and uh, Brian Lowe's a fascinating guest you know he's he's kind of doesn't do that many interviews and stuff so it's really Mm. cool to get him on and he started at Strategic Simulations Inc., which was a kind of role play, um, you know, Dungeons and Dragons style games came out of there. I had the Beholder was one as well, Pools of Darkness. He was doing a lot of testing on that. And then he later on went on to Midway. And of course, we all know about Midway. Interestingly, with this interview, we talk about, you know, going on to the PC. And Midway were actually a company that started doing PC ports quite early on. And, you know, this is a time where PC games didn't really kind of have many console ports or many straight from arcade ones. And uh, it's really interesting hearing about how they could get like the actual coin ops in the room and then, you know, reference them, but also then move on to many systems. So he's done so much development. You know, he's been associate producer for stuff like the Mortal Kombat trilogy, Rampage World Tour, Robotron X as well. A lot of these kind of arcade remakes and, you know, um, kind of ones where they jazz them up a bit and they put them on like a new system. And he was doing that like at a time when 
people weren't really doing that, where these games weren't as, you know, retro as they kind of are now. You, know, you talk about Gex as well, which uh, oh, yes. you know that is, that is one of the best games on the 3DO. I know, and and it's interesting because you talk to him about Gex, and he kind of feels the same as me that that game is actually quite underrated. I know it gets slated a lot, of, you know, by YouTube reviewers and stuff now, but it was interesting to hear about how his work oh, on and, uh, and Pandemonium on as, well. as well, which I absolutely mm-hmm. love. But later on, he went on to stuff like uh, the Xbox 360. So did stuff like you know Fantasy Star Two, Gunstar Heroes, Sonic and Knuckles. So it's a really interesting conversation this one, and. Uh, I, I really enjoyed getting Brian on. Yeah, so he's going to be on the show in around 30 minutes from now. Brian Lowe, our special guest this week. And of course, before that, we'd like to bring you up to speed on what's been happening in retro over the last week. And obviously, we're into summer now, and normally things start to quieten down a little bit in the summer months. But actually, been quite a lot happening in retro over the last week or so, um, including, it does feel like, I don't want to jinx anything, but it kind of feels like recently, there have been some decent video game adaptations into movies of course we had the uh, the tetris movie yeah you know, I, I, i'm actually excited about the blackberry movie um about the blackberry phones i know it's not video games but um mm. still tech and that that one's getting really good reviews at the moment it's in the cinema so i'm hyped yeah. for that and we had you know sonic and mario movies and even you know mortal Kombat as well i know joe and i were big fans of that and it turns out that there is another big video game franchise that is coming to the the silver screen gran turismo is getting a movie. And this is actually quite an interesting approach to a film, I think. This is, um, so about, so obviously we have the, uh, the patron news. And I remember about a year ago on the patron news, we discussed upcoming video game adaptations and Gran Turismo was one of them that like Hollywood was adapting. And I remember thinking like, this is going to be, so how do you like put Gran Turismo into a film? Ravi, either, either Ravi knows somebody in Hollywood or knows somebody at Sony it was you who Tyrannus says, unless they actually base it on the game Gran Turismo. Yeah, me, me and Quentin Tarantino were like that. <laughs> and the film from the trailer, it's based on the game Gran Turismo. It's it's kind of like, it's a, it's meant to be based on true events, isn't it? And it's an it, interesting concept, yeah. It's kind of yeah. like um, the, the, the main guy's playing it and then he's, 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 he's playing it on like a proper rig though, like, mm. um, you know, with, wheels and pedals and everything like that um yeah which i i don't know if they're that popular anymore they must be in this kind of niche of modern racing games and stuff to have these setups because i can imagine they've improved and stuff a lot um from when we used to have them well these are like hardcore racing fans have you know my mate griffo loves his racing games he's got a proper rig like this as well um but actually yeah i mean this is not just i mean originally when i heard they're doing a gran turismo movie i thought it's going to be a bit like you know Fast and Furious or something mm, like that. Same. But actually, this is a, it's based on a true story of a yeah. guy called Jan Mardenborough, um, who was a teenage Gran Turismo player. And he's, he's that good on the game. He actually won a series of Nissan competitions. And then he became an actual professional race car driver after his, you know, honing his skills on Gran Turismo. Yeah. And that's the film is based on the story and the opportunity that he gets to do that. So they're kind of like, I imagine there's going to be a lot of dramatization of it because it's Hollywood. Yeah. It's, you know, they've got to do that. But there's big names in it. You know, we've got David Harbour, you know, from Stranger Things in there. Jim Harper, yeah. Yeah, um, we've got um, Orlando Bloom in there as well. So some really, really big names. Um, and and I'm, I'm not a big fan of Gran Turismo, like never really been a fan of it or anything like that. I'm not a big fan of, of racing games or, you know, car films and stuff. But it sucked me in. The trailer sucked me in. I'm not going to lie. You know, I thought it looked yeah. pretty good. 
And um, it's it's only in cinemas. It's not like a Apple TV or anything like that. It's a full Sony production coming out on August 11th. I mean, not that like Apple TV and stuff isn't full productions, but you know, it's a it's a full Hollywood budget big film, which is you know I think is really interesting to see, and I think it will do quite well. And I think you're right there, Dan. We are seeing a real turn in video game films. I think you know, and you know, people who aren't just gamers are actually starting to see these as like actual viable ways of telling a story. If that makes sense. Well, I think it's an interesting story. Um, I I didn't know that it was true when I looked at the kind of trailer. I thought this is a bit rubbishy because I thought it was just not based on actual fact. Mm. But seeing that that's a fact, that's really interesting because I had a guy at school who was um, into professional racing and the the way that they would get into that is they'd usually have a go-kart and they'd have like a go-kart team and then they'd go through the leagues and the ranks and then you know, go into like faster cars and stuff like that. So coming in through the route of a video game is interesting. Of course, it looks like a massive product placement. Like every single clip in there is yeah. just... It is Sony after all. Yeah, it's just rammed full of like products in there. But then I guess that racing world also is, you know, every suit is like got sponsorship all over it and stuff. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it, it does look interesting. And I kind of like this approach, Um, you know, just showing this different route and you know, coming from the computer and playing it to, to actually doing it in real life where you're right, it's it's fast, it's dangerous, you can die. I've got one slight complaint though, which is a few people in the YouTube comments have agreed with me on this. Don't you find this a trend now when basically trailers show you the entire plot of the movie in two minutes? Yeah. And it's like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no surprises at all now. I, I've been enjoying one thing which I've started to do where they do little teasers and the teaser's usually the first like two minutes of the film. And then you're like, oh, that's good. Because, you know, yeah. the rest of it you can it. enjoy. Yeah. And apparently um, you'll be pleased about this, Ravi. Jerry Halliwell from the Spice Girls is going to be in here as well. As a oh, okay. resident Spice Girls fan, I'm sure you're, uh, you're pleased about that news. <laughs> yeah, I was I was more into posh, so yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and this is coming out, yeah, in cinemas, like you said, on the 11th of August, so only a couple of months to wait. Looks like it could be uh, one of this year's big summer blockbusters. So I was thinking the other day, I haven't been to the cinema for ages, so that might be a good excuse to get back out there because a lot of movies now they always come out on the streaming platforms as well yeah well this blackberry one's out in the cinema at the moment Mm. interesting good to get people back in there so uh we'll uh, link the trailer in the show notes want to check out that so far now uh, this looks very cool and uh, definitely up your street joe um as soon as i saw this i thought you know it is that that style that we saw in cuphead uh, particularly a couple of years ago this is a game called uh mouse now this is a noir retro shooter inspired by that kind of 1940s 1950 black and white kind of cartoon style isn't it that seems to be very back in again recently in video games yeah you know i can't help but look at it and think like say cuphead like it screams cuphead and at first because i've seen this everywhere i thought it was from the creators of cuphead but it's not um it's Mm. a completely different studio and stuff but you know why not go for it? It was it was a popular Cuphead was popular, and you know that art style is popular, and you know you kind of associate it with kind of like Disney in my head. Like those apparently, it's called um, Rubber Hose is the animation style. But, yeah, I was going to say Hanna Barbera as well, and uh, that kind of style mix. Yeah, Hanna Barbera. I think I feel for me it was like a little bit later, but like that that Rubber Hose style, as as Dan says, I I always think early Disney, but I think just like. A lot of cartoons looked like that in the 1920s and 1930s. But at the moment, this is kind of like a proof of concept kind of, well, it's a running demo, but there's no like, um, there's no like environments in it. It's just the characters and the weapons at the moment. And the environments are all kind of just like 
just plain flat like buildings and stuff like that is it is it a vr game it, it from what i've seen from the footage the what the movement of you know the, the the fps shooter it seems like a kind of vr title to me uh i don't think it is um no. i've not seen anywhere that it's a uh, vr game it just says it's a it could work in vr though, it could actually, work like, in vr but, but it just says it's a retro shooter um, okay. and obviously inspired by with it being inspired by classic cartoons a lot of the deaf animations of that very like tom and jerry you know you shoot them in the head and their head blows up kind of thing yeah and, you know really silly over-the-top animations but it looks the cat ca- you know the characters and the deaf animations and stuff that look absolutely beautiful and it, and it's um, all in black and white as well which is you know something that you don't really see these days and um you know interesting to to kind of be something that we haven't mentioned, you know, just because it does stand out so well. Yeah, you know what? Aesthetic. <laughs> it didn't even cross my mind that it was in black and white, you know, because the aesthetic suits it so well. Like, it didn't even occur to me that it's in black and white. I think, you know, because of the animation style and the artwork of it, yeah. it's so good. It, it just fits it so well. It just fits yeah. it so well. And uh, it's it's being developed by an independent uh, development team uh, called Fumi Games from Poland. Um, so I, I've not heard of them myself, but that you know, it, if they can pull this off, I think it looks absolutely excellent. Um, it says it's going to be a story-driven shooter, and it's going to be about murder and deception, you know, in the big corrupt city. You know, that might indicate to me that there might not be much of a multiplayer on it, and I, and I, that wouldn't surprise me because of because of the art style. I think some of the animations are going to have to be very scripted, if that makes some of some of like yeah, it's interesting. It says um, uh, the way that you approach people, uh, you, you can differ. So you can do like run and gun, or jump and dodge, or carefully plan the attacks. You know, like mm. um, Last of Us or something, where you've got the kind of choice of going in there and taking yeah. on a level, and that adds a good, uh, you know, replayability factor in there. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. yeah. I love the weapons as well. They're all kind of you know from that era. On the like your Tommy guns in there as well. You've even got like a dynamite, you know, that looks very old school Disney, like you said, or, or Warner Brothers. Um, so yeah, I think it does look really interesting. And I mean, obviously, the first person genre is a genre that's kind of been you know done to death over the last thirty years or so. And it's interesting to see kind of a, a quite creative and unique approach to it, isn't it? You know, I think definitely it looks different to any other FPS game that I've played before. And um, currently there is no release date as yet. And like, like Jay said, it's only a, pretty much a trailer that you can watch right now. But if you keep an eye on the Steam page, I'm sure there'll be a... I, I, I think there's a few hints to it being VR here where you've got um, on the Steam page, it actually says partial controller support. Um, mm. So maybe like the controller support would be changing weapons or something. But I'm just hoping this is VR because I want to get into a like mad animated you know, 1920s land. Yeah, and it does look like the style of it would really suit virtual reality, actually. Um, some of the screen shaking and stuff might make you a bit screen safe. <laughs> yeah. Turn that down a little bit if it's in VR when you shoot your weapons. But um, yeah, it does look very cool. So that's got mouse um, release date to be announced. Now, I always love seeing updates to my favourite games. And uh, I always like seeing games ported to hardware that doesn't get much love these days. And someone has basically improved the Mega Drive version of Golden Axe, harnessing the power of the 32x yeah this this uh this really caught my attention so yeah golden axe 32x edition now i know you're really familiar with the arcade version of golden axe aren't you dan yeah so i'm gonna be leaning on you you here a little bit because i've only ever played it a couple of times i'm more the golden axe you know for the sake of mega drive you know that was the version i grew up with but i know 
the the home port and the arcade port are very similar. Like Sega did a really mm. good job of porting uh, Golden Axe Arcade to the Mega Drive. I know, like you know, to the untrained eye, it's it's you know, it's kind of one for one. But I know there was a few things missing in backgrounds, and there was quite a few sound effects missing, and the music was slightly different and stuff like that. But this has been created by uh, a user called Visser. In, it's meant to enhance the 1989 home version. So some of the maps are reworked based on the arcade version. Um, and, you know, so it, they kind of like, how do I describe it? Like, the, is, obviously it's a belt scrolling side long beat them up, but they've kind of like altered the backgrounds and like, you know, the layout of the level to match the arcade version of it, you know, more closely. Yeah, some of the levels were cut down a bit, I think, on the Mega Drive, yeah. probably for space reasons. And some of the backgrounds weren't quite as high resolution yeah. as they were on the arcade. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's um, improved some of the animations um, in the backgrounds and some of the animations in the enemies. Um, for example, uh, the level where you're on the back of the giant eagle and the giant turtle. In the arcade versions, there were some animations of like the eyes moving and the feathers moving yeah. and stuff. They've added all that into the game. Um, uses uh, the door animations which were present in the arcade machine. Um, it also has the demo where the game plays itself and shows off the magic. So they're all just like little like things that make it a lot closer to the uh, to the arcade experience. Um, but something you pointed out to me when we were talking about this earlier on is the sound effects of the game are still the Mega Drive version. Is that right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, by the looks of this... I haven't tried this ROM hack yet, but from the video I've watched, yeah, that's one thing that I would like to see more of in ports of Golden Axe. Because even when you play, you know, the, the version on like Xbox Live, that hasn't got the... Because, you know, in the, the original arcade game, they sample sound effects from movies, didn't they? You know, Rambo, you know, there's a lot of that Rambo yeah. screams and stuff in yeah, there yeah, as yeah. well. I understand why they don't usually put them in. Because obviously, you know, copyright wasn't really much of a thing in video games. Mm. When that came out back in the late 80s, you know, they could kind of get away with yeah. it because video games were quite an underground thing. So I get why now they don't, but I think, you know, for a fan project, it would be nice if they maybe could insert some of those, the actual movie rip sound effects into their home ports as well. Yeah. It could be one thing that they do. Yeah, I mean, I for me, I, I <laughs> whenever I play Golden Axe, which is definitely a yearly thing, you know, on like a Mega Drive compilation, I always do do the sound effects like from the enemies dying when they just go like, like that like i do i do like them yeah um but the catch of it is it's a 32x version but he can't get it to run on the actual 32x hardware so it yeah. runs in 32x emulation no problems but when you run it on the 32x like through like an everdrive um it crashes after the character select screen so he's actually invited anyone that wants to take a shot at fixing the bug to you know a chance at the source code so if you reach out to him he will send people the source code and say look get it running on the 32x like hardware so it runs an emulation that's fantastic but let's actually get it on the hardware you know that's that's where he's at with it yeah and i think that you know that makes sense as well because obviously it looks like you know if it's running on the emulator you know it must just be a small bug Mm. that means it's crashing on the original hardware you know when you get past that one bug hopefully the rest of the game will run fine um but yeah it does seem very cool i think just having something new Developed for the 32X as well, because, I mean, you don't see much homebrew for the 32X. I mean, not that I've explored the scene much, but I've got a 32X, but I haven't really seen much coming along. You know, we always hear about new Dreamcast games and new Game Boy games, but 32X doesn't seem to get a lot of love, really, does it? Yeah, you know, you always hear, you know, the new Dreamcast game or, you know, a Mega CD port or something like that. But yeah, I can't, can't say it's fit. I see much of the 32X. Maybe I'm missing it and it's all really, really underground, but yeah, it's good to see it get seen some love. <laughs> I think it's because... 
a lot of people you know, obviously didn't buy them back in the day. I mean, I remember when the 32X came out, the Saturn wasn't far behind it. Mm. So everyone just thought, oh, I'll wait for the Saturn, you know, if you're a Sega fan. And we, we, you were talking to me the other day that you kind of feel like you've missed the boat on the 32X now, because, you know, a decade ago you could pick them up for like 20 quid. Oh, I've definitely missed the boat on them. They're like 300 quid now in the UK. Like, God. you know, it's, I mean, maybe about 200 for an unboxed one, but, you know, it doesn't feel like it was that long ago. You managed to scoop one up for like... 80 quid was it 70 quid and even then it was I think I, could have, I, think I got it less I think like 59 or something it was about five years ago but even then you were like I need to get I remember you being like I need to get one of these before they get too much because they're just going up and up and up and I remember seeing them in game station and stuff like that for like 20 quid around 2010 2008 and now I'm just like man now I'm an adult with adult money I just can't bear to spend like 300 pound on one like you know it's just, just so much money and yeah, just, the games for them are really expensive as well. And there's only a handful of, you know, kind of like well-known good games for the 32X. And they're all just as expensive as the actual console itself. So, but yeah, it's good to see, you know, some homebrew hacked love for it, you know, that you can emulate if you want to. Well, you have to. <laughs> Yeah, well, hopefully someone will get out working on the original hardware soon. I know there's a, a lot of ingenuity in the retro community. I'm sure someone will get it up and running. So if you want to check out the uh, the link, I'll, uh, I'll link that up. It's on romhacking.net in our show notes at theretrohour.com or check your podcast app notes. Now, Ravi, have you ever wanted a 386 PC yes. in your pocket? Yes, I have. I've, I've wanted one in my house, not, not in my pocket, but having it in my pocket is an absolute bonus. So this uh, story is from Janir, and um, he submitted it on our Discord this is really cool. This is called the Hand 386, and um, it's it's a handheld. Um, it's kind of, they say, Nintendo 2DS form factor. I think it's a bit cooler than a 2DS because it's got a keyboard in there. And mm. um, this is a, an actual de- device that isn't using FPGA. It's not using any emulation. It's using real chips and um so there's a real 386 processor real 386 processor in there you've got video ram you've got um the opl3 chip for the sound you've got um actual ram in there as well uh you know your bios your v bios it's um really cool this is sold on aliexpress and um i'm noticing that there are more of these cool little devices popping onto aliexpress and um what what do you think of the form factor of this guy's like it's got a battery in there as well you've even got your your ps2 keyboard that you can plug in at the side i think it's really cool i mean it kind of reminds me a bit of um kind of you know pdas that you get in the early late 90s early 2000s yeah you know they had those really small kind of keys on there i've got like a an old sharp pda somewhere that's quite similar but yeah i mean you've got like it's a widescreen display that's on there so it's kind of looks looks like 69 kind of form factor, doesn't it, with the keyboard underneath. And, uh, yeah, I mean, you, look, you check out this uh, this video here on the screenshots as well on this uh, article in Tom's Hardware, and, you know, they've got it running Windows 95 on here. You've got 40 megahertz, 386 CPU in there, 8 megabytes of RAM. It's, it's pretty compact fast, flash you know. Yeah, you've mm. got a, a gig compact flash in there as well, and you obviously you'll be able to change that out and everything. Now, interestingly, looking at it... Um, it's kind of unavailable at the moment on AliExpress. And I probably think this is because Tom's hardware has featured it. 
<laughs> and that's right. You think it's, it's sold out now based on this article? Yeah, I think I think it's basically sold out straight away. But there are other ones that are available, and the price of it isn't that bad. I think it was around a hundred and sixty pounds mm. um, for 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 what you're getting. I don't know what the quality of the keyboard's going to be like. You know, there's yeah. I mean, they were never that great on these kind of small yeah, PDA devices could, anyway. It, it were could they? be a bit too clicky or something, but. Um, also, looking at the uh, bottom of this article as well, there's another link to another device which is actually available, which is more of a kind of a, a notebook uh, form, which is the uh, Book 8088, and that's actually got chips in there as well, and you could put that in, and that's 165 um, for that one. But that's more of a CGA kind of computer, yeah. like an older older IBM you know, for the yeah, uh, an eight oh eight eight processor, yeah, exactly, and 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 you actually have the processors that you can clip into there. But I think this is cool that they're going into this like MS DOS era, and, and and they're not just you know making a cheap kind of emulator or or you know even just an FPGA board and then you know reprogramming it or something. They're actually getting the original chips and doing it. This is this is pretty pretty innovative and i can't wait to see uh, more of these devices and you know see people try them out check them on youtube and stuff um i really like this link you know there's some people in the the comments on this tom's hardware article you know the first guy in here is going some of the dumbest products i've seen in a while why not make it at least a 486dx from i've got a 486dx that thing needs a heat sink and a fan on there you know, to run reliably, at least at 100 megahertz, like I've got mine. Yeah, I, I just um, want to play like Jazz Jackrabbit or something yeah. on there, you know, if, on the move, you know. And people are saying, you know, it won't run Doom a good quality. You know, you might get Wolfenstein running on here, but I'm, I'm not sure that's the point of this. I mean, I'm looking at maybe who is the target market for these devices. And I've got a feeling it's maybe that first one, you know, the, the 386 handheld, that could be, you know, maybe aimed at retro games players because you've got the video card and stuff on there as well. Yeah. But I think that um, the, the book... 8088 that thing is probably more aimed at maybe industrial users you know who maybe need to like emulate well not emulate actually run software made for these ancient i, I want to I mean, downgrade this machine to windows uh you know the 3.1 yeah we should run and, on, uh, and run sim tower and have sim tower on the move that would be awesome you know this this is a cool little device for that nostalgia. It's not going to be like for serious work, you know. It's it's it, this is for your DOS fan, you know. Or I mean, the, there are a lot of industries where there are ancient machines still running. I mean, I saw there's a job listing came up a few months ago. The one a company wanted a COBOL programmer because they had these uh, you know ancient mainframes that have been I running since a, the sixties and an on-site technician that needs a three eight six processor yeah. could just whip <laughs> it out, you know, uh, for for that rare opportunity. Yeah, you'd probably be surprised at how many, like, you know, 30, 40-year-old systems are still up and running, you know, in, in dusty server rooms that, you know, someone needs access to or, or needs to run software made for them on real hardware. So there probably is a market for that as well. I mean, God, there's still websites that sell, like, new floppy disks and stuff, it, You know, there, so. it'd just be cool to run demos on as well or something. Yeah, yeah I, I yeah, really so. like this. Yeah, but like you said, it's the uh, the Tom's Hardware effect. It looks like uh, only one of those is available now, and uh, maybe not the time when this episode comes out, but uh, there is a little video that you can check out, and of course I'll link up the full article and everything else we talk about. you find it all in our show notes at theretrohour.com. Now we're going to talk to this week's very special guest, Brian Lowe, is coming up on the podcast in just a minute. Before we do that... Let's take a moment to give a big thank you to this episode's sponsor, and that is our wonderful friends at Shopify. And if you're a Shopify user, you will love this sound. 
You know what that sound means, Ravi? That is the sound of making money on Shopify. Oh, yes. I, I think Shopify is great. You know, it's it's so hard to set up a, a stall and kind of, you know, to set up all that e-commerce yourself. And uh, Shopify yeah. does a lot of it for you. Yeah, and actually, you know, there is so many different use cases for Shopify as well. It is the all-in-one commerce platform. You can start, run, and grow your business on there as well. And it seems like, you know, at the moment, particularly after, you know, COVID and stuff, a lot of people are starting a side hustle or even becoming their own bosses as well. And that sound means that you've just made another sale on Shopify. Now, I've actually got a friend of mine who, um, he was actually writing some books and originally started to sell them on there on his own website. And he was doing like you said, Ravi, he had like a form on there, people have to fill in, he'd have to get in touch with them and ask them to PayPal money over to him. And then he'd have to, you know, get their address off them an email, you know, send it out in the post and everything. Such a headache trying to do that yourself. And the thing is, whatever you're selling online, it could be books, it could be retro games. It could be, you know, hardware that you're making. It could be any business, whether you're selling online or even in person as well. Using Shopify just takes the headache completely out of it and lets you grow your business as well. And it covers all of your sales channels. So, you know, you've got the shop ready point of sale system to the all-in-one e-commerce platform. One thing that's really cool about Shopify is it even lets you sell across your social media marketplaces. Oh, that's You know, great. stuff like Facebook, yeah, Instagram, TikTok, takes care of all that for you as well. They're like the market leaders there. And uh, they've got industry-leading tools ready to help your business grow, give you complete control over it as well. And the most important thing, and I think you, because, I mean, your day job is web development, isn't it? And the fact is you don't need any coding experience or you don't have to learn design, do you? To yeah, that's it. great. You're not sat there updating it constantly and trying to yeah. kind of maintain it. You know, it does a lot of the work for you. And uh, it's also got, you know, 24-7 help as well and a whole extensive business course library. So it's really good and it supports you on every step of the way. Yeah, so it really takes a headache all out of it. And like I said, you know, my friend, he's now selling his books online. You know, Shopify takes care of all of it for him so he can focus on what he really loves doing, which is writing more books. So no matter how big you want to grow, Shopify will be there to give you the confidence and control to take your business to the next level. So if you're selling anything, why don't you try Shopify today? They'll make it a reality for you. And check this out, right? We've got you a great offer. You can sign up for just £1 a month for a trial period by using our exclusive link, let Shopify know that we sent you there. It helps the podcast out as well. Everyone's a winner. Head to Shopify, that's S-H-O-P-I-F-Y dot co.uk slash retro hour. So that's Shopify.co.uk slash retro hour and take your business to the next level today and get ready to hear lots of this. And a big thank you to our friends at Shopify for their support of our show. Now, of course, we are getting uh, towards the end of the month again, amazingly. That does mean next weekend it is going to be our favourite weekend of the month. The Patrons Hangout is going to be on. Uh, I do actually land back from Pixel Heaven in Poland, I think at 7pm on <laughs> where, Sunday where, evening. you saying... Oh, yeah, I could just, uh, you know, put the patrons chat on in the car and uh, just kind of drive back and, and have it on in the background, which which yeah. might work, actually, you know. I don't want to miss it because I love the patrons hangout. So I think, yeah, man, I've got my AirPods. I can just have it on audio only in the car or on the, on the Bluetooth while I'm driving back. Or I might hang around in Stansted Airport for an hour and hop on. I really don't want to miss it because it is, you know, it is my favourite thing. Dan just at Burger do. King. <laughs> Eating yeah, there's a good idea, yeah, making us all jealous. <laughs> so if you sign up on Patreon this weekend, you're going to get an invite to the Patrons Hangout that is coming up on uh, the last Sunday of every month. We usually do it. So that'll be Sunday, the 28th of May. And uh, Patrons Hangout, I mean, Joe, it's just, just a giggle, isn't it? Absolutely. I, I always see it as just like 
hanging out with friends. And it's always really funny to see where the conversation goes. Like, obviously, it always kind of starts with tech. And then we talk about films. Sometimes we end up talking about, like, ostriches and uh, emus and what the difference are between them and stuff And and Joe's Joe's eyes glaze over when Amiga chat comes on. Oh, yeah, (laughs) absolutely. We return back to another subject. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, we can go from ostriches to Amiga just like that. Like, it is crazy. But I'll keep saying this, you know, I really have made friends on the Patreon Hangout, like... You know, I'm really looking forward to meeting some of them at Ravi's event as well. Like, you know, it's just an absolute blast. And like Dan says, like, I'd be gutted if you missed it as well, Dan, like, because it it is just like hanging out with mates, you know, having a cider, having a beer. You know, it's really, really cool. And we're looking at like kind of like alternating the dates a little bit. And it's always good to get some patrons on the show as well. So we'll be having a patron on Mm. the show soon as well, because it's always nice to have their input. Yeah, so if you want to sign up to Patreon right now, it's a very good time getting back to the Hangout next weekend. And uh, for our gold members and above, we will be recording a, another episode of our bonus podcast, of which there are now 35 episodes that you'll unlock if you back us as a gold member above or on Patreon. Uh, the Retro Hour After Hours, and Joe actually came up with a really good idea. We might be quizzing each other on the next episode. <laughs> you've not told you've seen Mastermind this. on T. Yeah, we haven't told Ravi yet, but you've seen Mastermind <laughs> oh, on T. <man>. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> we're going to pick our specialist subject and we're going to quiz each other. This should be a bit of a giggle. So um, we're going to be recording that next week so you'll get access to that too. And of course, the main reason that you're doing it, you're joining us on Patreon, is that just to support this podcast and make sure that we can keep bringing episodes out every single week. It really helps us out. And of course, we do welcome all new patrons into the most prestigious high score table in the world of retro gaming. And that is the Retro Hour Hall of Fame. And a big thank you to our latest backer, that is James Stewart. Thank you so much for your support and all the details to join us on Patreon, join the community or on our website at theretrohour.com. Okay, the next is going to get some stories from the days of strategic simulations, the legendary Midway, porting arcade games to PCs back in the day with our very special guest, Ravi, talks to Brian Lowe next on the Retro Hour podcast. You're listening to the Retro Hour podcast and we're here today with Brian Lowe. We're going to be talking all about Midway, strategic simulations and porting some of those arcade classics onto the PC and consoles. How are you doing, Brian? I'm doing very well. How are you? Yeah, I'm doing really good. And uh, we've got a question that we always ask our guests and that takes them to the past a bit. It's... What was your first video game experience? My first video game experience would have to be when I was a kid at the coin ops, uh, playing like Jump Bug, uh, Dragon's Lair, Pinball Machines, that kind of the old classics that uh, you know most arcades had at that time. I don't know that there were too many real home systems. I, I think the Coleco Vision and the Atari 2600. Uh, those types of things were around, but as a child, I really didn't have much of those. So my time was spent trying to hoard quarters and, <laughs> and go to the bowling alley. <laughs> was that the place you went then, the bowling alley, or was that big local arcades as well? That Yeah, it was a local bowling alley that had all the machines, and it was in between school and home. So any of my lunch money that I could kind of stuff in my pocket, you know, get the experience or, or stand behind people. You know, and, you know, Dragon's Lair was one of those viewing type of games it was fun it's was fun to watch somebody who knew how to play it as lose a quarter real quickly on that one yeah if it actually worked i remember that one was quite notorious for like breaking down <laughs> yeah. and uh getting shut down a lot it's a good point good point 
I was wondering when you mentioned systems, did you have any when you were growing up and did you ever attempt any programming on them? No, you know what? Growing up, I did not have any computers uh, or game systems. It was all the arcades. In fact, my first day on the job at Strategic Simulations, and this is a running joke with some of the, the people, I, I still know the, the previous execs, it's I didn't know how to turn the computer on. <laughs> so, but I was setting up PC compatibility labs in a couple of years at MediaVision. So, but, but no, I, I grew up with uh, no, no computer systems at home. I, I did some college classes for the Apple IIe programming, and I, I learned quickly that I'm not strong enough at math, so I, I stuck with design uh, and production, and biz dev kind of was my career path, uh, not not programming. Well, where, where did that design come from? Because, uh, you know, we've had lots of guests on the show, and they've talked about uh, Dungeons & Dragons being a big influence, um, certain board games, and kind of yeah. seeing games on other people's machines as well. Yeah, I think my, like I said, I started at SSI. I was a tester. I quickly, I don't know how or why, I got into designing for Eye of the Beholder series two and, and then mostly on three. Um, and at the time, we would use a graph paper. I would design, uh, you know, exploration and maps and we would role play it. And then if it role played well enough, then I would translate that into a level for, for the game. And it was based, basically, it goes back to high school. You know, from the Dungeons and Dragons that I would, I had all the books, just nerd out on the, on the worlds and read fantasy novels. So it was a, a wonderful time to explore my imagination and, and come up with ideas and see people enjoy and role play it. Um, we would, like I said, I was all on graph paper. Um, and at the time, this was like a 28612 PC without windows. I had to translate it, all the walls with be an ASCII character. So, had a legend where I translate the map into 286 DOS using ASCII characters, and then the engineers would take that. God knows what they did with it, but it, it, it turned out <laughs> I the boulder. Oh, I've, I've never heard of uh, you know people going into ASCII I, and doing it. It was the only time I've seen it before or since. <laughs> it was like I didn't, you know, I was new, I, I didn't know I was learning ASCII, so it was kind of cool. <laughs> well, um. How did you hear about strategic simulations and how did you get the job as a tester? Yeah, I was at the time in my life, I was, I'm ex-Navy. I was in the U.S. Navy. I had gotten out of the military and, you know, I was looking for direction, just like a, a young man on all we wanted. And I think at the time I might have been a valet parker. I was surfing. I was having the time of my life. And my sister, she said, hey, there's a bunch of Dungeons and Dragons looking for a computer tester. And I... That sounds pretty cool. Let me try that out. Next thing you know, you know, I got the job. But yeah, it was seemed pretty easy <laughs> at the time. Well, um, what was that process like, that testing process? Did you have a procedure that you had to follow? Yeah, yeah. I guess it was a little different back then because we had to handwrite. All the QA bugs were handwritten at the time. We, you know, established categories and severity, regression testing. Our test department was pretty solid, you know, as I look back now that I have experience with all the test groups, you know, that test team and was very productive, very good at what we did. I think a lot of it was broken out into different skill sets. You know, certain guys were better at grammar. Or I was better at finishing the game quickly. or So we broke it out into responsibilities and skill sets, uh, but maintained a high level of quality when it came to actually writing the bugs. And like I said, it was all handwritten at the time, so it was a little bit more time-consuming. 
somebody else would then transcribe our handwritten notes into a database. So there was only one person actually entering it all. So we had to make sure it was very clear and legible. You mentioned there that you didn't have much experience using uh, other computers. How did you, you know, get used to using the like Amiga and the PC yeah. and the Mac and all these different systems? Did you have to sit down and kind of teach yourself? It was overtime. I, at the time, yeah, I didn't really call it overtime. You know, it was a different time in the industry. And I was charged up just learning. I, you know, the consoles at the time, the Commodore 64, you know, double-sided floppies. And to me, it was exciting. And, you know, being able to then go to the Amiga uh, and then opening up a PC for the first time, that was extremely exciting. Like, oh man, there's these chips and <laughs> different cards and what do they all do? You know, it was kind of like having two jobs at some level because the amount of learning uh, that, that was going on at the time. Um, but yeah, it, it was just over time. I know, you know, there's a few mentors also, you know, I, I might say I a lot, but these are all teams and a lot of, you know, very experienced and smart people helped, helped me, you know, get up to speed on what I needed to know. And then probably distracted me a little bit on the hard, to be honest, I dove into the hardware side a little bit and trying to figure out what this chip does and what does that do? And at some point I was like, you know what, that it doesn't matter. That's a sound card, buddy. <laughs> Just slow down. Um, nowadays, there's not that much difference with like, you know, the Mac and PC is pretty much the OS. But um, back then it was like black and white, the Mac was. And uh, the, the Amiga was a uh, color and gooey and they had a yeah. command line and the DOS. Um, you know, yeah. was it hard to, to get used to all these different environments? It, no and yes. I think when you, like, I went from SSI to Media Vision. And that's really kind of where we, I say we because it was one of my best friends at the time, and we would set up a complete PC compatibility lab. We had all the, the chips. We had all, all the video cards, all the sound cards. We created multi-boots. We were doing third-party production plus QA and compatibility testing. So, you know, back then it was like, ooh, the promise of plug and play. Like, you know, it's only really started working in the last year, if you ask me. So is it's been a little challenging because I, I think on some of this tech, like uh, plug and play or Dragonsoft was a voice recognition software that we were working with at the time. And it took weeks to train it to be, you know, near to incompetent. Uh, and you kind of forget about it. And then like, oh, I, I you know, oh, you scoff at this tech. You learn it, you scoff at it, and then a year later, it's ready for prime time, and you feel. I felt like, oh, what did I missed it? I should have stuck with it. So it's it's more about just sticking with it and watching it evolve and being excited with it through the years. I, I think you know there are times where, like, I, I launched the Vive, uh, you know, and deep diving into VR for three years, three four years. At some point, you get PTSD. You know, I don't want to do NFTs. I've just got done with 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 VR, so it, you know, it, it's about the desire to learn and track all this stuff. It's just exciting. If, if it doesn't wear you, if it doesn't wear you out, yeah, I I remember some of the uh, the voice recognition wasn't as good as it is uh, nowadays at all. Um, I, I was wondering, you know, you were testing like. Um, pools of darkness and uh eye of the beholder how much influence did you have uh, did you manage to put yes. anything into those games yes at the time at ssi specifically and it well most times actually if i've ever all my roles where i've been part of qa 
it's either QA production or just QA. I, I mean, I was talking directly with engineers and production and, and they were very receptive. Like, Hey, this, you, you know, as a QA, you don't go in and just say this sucks. That No, use it. <laughs> this isn't optimal and this would be better. And, and understanding the limitations of the engine or what they're working with. So I, I think again, I, as I said, the SSI test team, we knew the engines, we knew what they were capable of. And our suggestions were usually only tapered by time. Like, oh, we don't have enough time to get to this. They were always received well for Is the most it part. seen as a, as a path to getting onto her other things, testing or, or just kind of a summer job? I, I, for me, it was a career. I had never felt like that before. And I was excited to learn. And I think some, some came in with summer jobs, you know, that the students are coming in. And, but I think most people back then saw it as an opportunity to get in the industry, understand what kind of discipline you're good at or like to do, and then strike out from there. I went into production and, you know, biz dev and, and some of these other areas, but I've never left QA and design behind, right? It was, it, it's always been there behind me or next to me. It depends on my roles. But uh, yeah, I think, you know, at Midway, I remember we had a very large QA department and all the producers that followed us, the first bunch were out of QA. And there's a few now I still deal with that are, you know, I pulled them out of QA, we train them and now they're on the other side of the table. I think I, I trained some of them too well. <laughs> Moving out of that fantasy genre, you um, ended up joining Midway. What was it like joining Midway and uh, how did you find out about them? Yeah, Midway, I, let's see, where was I before? I'm, I'm going to guess here. I think I was at North Star Studios uh, in the Bay Area. Um, we had a, a couple titles canceled that was a, that so closed the studio at the time. I was on the hunt. I think it was a friend recommendation that they were starting. Midway had just started a, a production team internally. I didn't know this at the time, but basically Acclaim did that first NBA jam and made a lot of money. Midway said, well, we should do it ourselves. So I was, he was brought on as the first producer in their third party group. And we grew up from there. It was a pretty charged environment. I'll say that. <laughs> it was different than SSI. At Midway, you, uh, you mentioned the NBA and getting into that kind of sports genre coming from fantasy. What was it like, you know, getting into rosters and all of the kind of sports stuff? Yeah. Uh, so the licensor side of stuff, I mean, I would be doing TSR. So, you know, working with the Dungeons and Dragons license or NBA. Two factors, obviously, they're very different in how they handle their IP and their licenses, but also my experience level from just starting in the industry where I, I did know left from right in a lot of ways to now I, I know by process. I know how to make a game. Now, now I'm learning more, more on the IP side. So my eyes were a little bit uh, more open when it came to the NBA. As far as the content goes, I mean, I, I loved NBA Jam. We were playing that before Midway, you know, so it was kind of, it was exciting to be able to work on a title that existed, you know, working with the NBA and bringing these titles home, trying to figure out the, how do we make these better for the home consoles? Um, Unbeknownst to me, I think we were killing the coin-op market as as we were doing it. Um, unfortunately, yeah, it was uh, it was interesting at Midway because you know obviously they released the coin-op stuff, but 
also then started doing console ports and PC ports. Did you guys end up getting, you know, some of the original yeah. coin ops and uh, arcade units to reference? Yes. So we, well, I work closely with Chicago. So Chicago, um, NBA Jam was created in Chicago, Mortal Kombat, Chicago. The San Diego office was a home to a lot of the porting mechanisms. When we first started, that was the, the mandate. When it came to NHL hits, that was an original through me that was an NBA Jam, NFL Blitz. I, I was working on the hockey. But for the most part, taking the original code base, or came up digital eclipse, um, some of these engineers that, you know, they can take this binary code, port it over. Same with Euricom. You know, they they were experts at that. And, you know, what we did was we targeted the market opportunities for the PC, what, what games went into the package, what made sense, what do we have the code for and the rights, um, and then worked on those home conversions. And it was, to some degree, it was a little bit evergreen, right? Any new consoles came out. It wasn't the first generation of games that we would want to do, but maybe second or third, we'd do an arcade classic. Uh, and I think there's always that retro. It's more more retro now than it was then, but it, it certainly is scratches the itch for a lot of gamers, right? That Robotron feel. Um, and then there were times where we were trying to update Joust, Robotron. Like I did Robotron X. Sorry, Eugene Jarvis. But it was, I, that was the first title I think I had when I came on board at Midway. It was, Hey, what do you want to work on it? Well, what do you, what, what do you need me to work on? And it was Robotron X. And, you know, we, we tried to pay as much homages to the original as possible and make a fun experience. But sometimes I think it's just best to leave those alone and let them, let them stand on their own. Yeah. You know, um, it's interesting because touching something that's so loved by so many people and uh i kind of loved seeing those uh classics you know ported but also now you kind of see something and people release it as retro but back then it would be released with you know maybe 10 or 20 years later than the actual machine being out there so yeah it's, it's really interesting to see uh those well yeah even that i think nba showtime nba jam to nba showtime and they were like, I think then the NBA hoops and then fast breaks. So there was, well, fast break was NBA 2K. It was a little different, but though those coin ops were in the, in the environment, we were trying to do at some point, you know, a one to one simultaneous launch with, I think it was Showtime. I could be off on that, but um, they, they were trying to get them out at the same time as some of these coin ops were being put out at Midway. You know, internally at San Diego, they were doing coin op development internally at the same time we were doing external development. Yeah, it's interesting going uh, onto PC at the time and getting, you know, like um, console and arcade ports on there because a lot of the games were, you know, strategy and uh, uh, there were quite a lot of serious games on there. Was was that kind of a, a an idea to expand that market? Yeah, is PC distribution at the time. Again, expand the market. If it's a Midway, if there was a device that played the games that we could put it on, we would explore that as an option. Handheld, PC, console, you know, as phones. I don't think we did phones at that time. But, yeah, we would explore anything just to maximize the business opportunity. It was a challenge to some degree on the con- on the PC side just because it's a keyboard. If there's, It's an arcade game designed for quarters not extended play. Like I think you brought up strategy games. Those are deep. It takes a long time to play. You sit down and you experience it. 
where coin ops are meant, you know, here you're holding a beer in one hand and you're shoving a quarter in with a nest and, and you're, you're having a good time. They're not designed for that type of experience, but uh, we did the best we could. Yeah, also I uh, I guess a lot of consoles, you know, come with a gamepad where the PC would have to have the option of playing with a keyboard or, or supporting one of these uh, third-party gamepads. You just brought PTSD again. I forgot about all that. Yeah, Gravis and... <laughs> They would send us all the all the support we needed, but it was, you know, reconfiguring a keyboard, uh, gamepad support. All that was part of you know a, a heavy QA cycle and any kind of support we would give. You know, also had bundling opportunities. I think for hardware. And uh, a lot of the time, you know, uh, PCs were more powerful. So, did you have any extra options to you know uh, use that and improve the graphics? Well, yeah. The- irony of the situation i think as pcs evolved it didn't really uh, apply we had to tone down frame rate for the coin ops right they we would lock it at 60 or because of fighting games are very locked to their frame rate you have to make sure everything was aligned but yeah we weren't able to at least on the retro stuff maximize too much to the content it was more about tapering it down so that retro stuff, were there any particular favorites that you liked? Uh, I know you did Rampage, and uh, that's a classic. It must have must have been interesting doing those kind of four <laughs> yeah. players at the, yeah, at the same time. Yeah, you know, I'm trying to think. I, you know, probably NBA Jam. Like, we, we brought that up a bit. I, I did a lot of the work with the league, and it's as much about I enjoyed the game before I started at Midway, having the opportunity to work closely with the dev team. But it was also like, I, I mean, I remember still, I got a letterhead from the NBA on some approval to, to address to me, right? I was like, Ooh, I've <laughs> arrived, you know, little, little memories like that through the years, you know, working with the league on a, on a brand. I, I love basketball. I was playing it at the time. So it, I found that to be extremely exciting, but they were, they're all fun. <laughs> like you brought up rampage. You're bringing stuff up that I completely forgot about for all these years, you know, seeing rampage at e3 and the, the costume guys walking around him <laughs> you're like oh that that's my game that's oh, yeah, funny. i i love rampage you know it's it's been ported to so many systems uh it's even got a movie now um oh i was wondering what was the first time you saw mortal kombat like yeah. i think that well before midway um and i hate to say it publicly but i was a street fighter guy i, I really enjoyed the rotation of the buttons rather than left right up down is play style on the buttons but i i didn't really do too much on mortal Kombat. i think i did a game boy or a, and a couple other smaller ones but those i am fighting games to me I, I enjoy it's more of a, a moment to play but developing them at times is a a bit more tedious than <laughs> than i wanted i think there there was a certain when once we got our staff up at midway we were able to kind of, you know, assign different products that, you know, who fit better, better personality types for the products where I stuck more on the sports and I, I kind of didn't want to work on the fighting stuff too much. I, I think I later did a Street Fighter HD online fighting uh, for PlayStation, I think it was, but that, that one was a little better because I like Street Fighter. But don't. Yeah, yeah, that was <laughs> that was mad. I, I, I remember it was um, Mortal Kombat trilogy and it had about, 30 characters in it uh, yeah <laughs> was that a bit of a task yeah sometimes it it really these if it's a port and it's a good code base and the dev team it it comes together quite quickly 
it's that last bit where you're QAing and you're, you know, there are just finding edge cases. And if you don't enjoy, like, I guess it goes back down to QA. If you don't enjoy that kind of process of cleaning stuff up, you might not enjoy it, but I sure do. There was a whole new aspect uh, that came in on the PC that wasn't available uh, on the consoles at the time, and that was networking. Was it a a bit of a task to, you know, get that all tested and, and get everything working all at the same time? Yes. In the early days, I think... I always think, and this is, I think engineering always has some mystery bug bucket that if they don't know what's going on, that's what they say. In the old days, it was memory leaks. That's a memory leak. It's going to take a while. And then they buy some time. The internet popped up and now it's packet loss and and latency. So (laughs) there was always something. And it was, you know, I remember, I'm trying to think of where, I mean, even SSI, Dark Sun, they had that had an online mode back in 91. I, I didn't even realize it until later. We didn't really test it, or as I recall testing it, I think, you know, moving, you know, forward in time at Midway, we were looking at a lot of arcade class, Open Ice or any of these kind of games, that, and we gave them to, I forgot the company's name, to evaluate, to see if they, 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 it could be overcome to actually play these games online. Um, it did not deem viable at the time at Midway. Um, moving forward, you know, this might be one of those technologies where I was like, geez, all this internet stuff, you know, it's going to take a long time. And I blinked, <laughs> you know, and then, oh, wow, everything's working great through dial-up now. So it's been a process. It's kind of amazing that that kind of technology is just in and of itself, like phones, internet, none of this was around when I started. Yeah, it was It was that <laughs> kind of buzzword at the time, wasn't it? Um, network play and, uh, yeah. you know, it, it, it was kind of never really like fully established until, you know, it, it came onto uh, the consoles and uh, it got yeah. a bit more ma- mainstream. I well, remember the lag at the time. TV, right? I remember Midway 4K. I think it was a 4K. It might have been even 1080, but, you know, following technology and making sure we're cutting edge and available on it, it it's a constant uh, you know i don't want to call it uphill or a struggle but it, you just always have to be aware of the technology we in the game industry it's it's not it's it's changing a lot faster like movies they they don't advance their technology they advance some techniques gaming every every year is some new device and we have to you know adapt to it it's, it's kind of challenge but that again is part of the excitement you know you you have to follow all these business model trends freemium you have to follow the hardware from coin up to pc to phone model and and how do you apply those two variables to a new game like you got to design a game to the hardware and to the consumer base that's going to pay this is just an ongoing part of the business that again <laughs> what excites me it's like a, i turn around and you know, I don't know anything the next day. Better, <laughs> better pay attention. Yeah, and it's uh, it's interesting as well because around that time, you know, there were, compared to now, there was such a choice of consoles, and it was uh, kind of hard to pick which one was going to be be the next successful one. And um, talking of that, what what did you think about the Sega Saturn? Sega Saturn, I vaguely remember, to be quite honest, that that was a, a blip. I again, they were coming. Hardware was coming and going so fast. It was, you know, for me at the time, I believe it was kind of like 
technical evaluation on content. If it was a port, we kind of already knew what our memory requirements were and limitations. It was almost more about the development, the partner relationships that the, the hardware manufacturers had, you know, as Sony, Nintendo, Sega, Microsoft, any of these companies, as we started working closely with them to put content on their hardware, I, I was probably more on that relationship side than it was, you know, creating assets that go into the, to the, to the game. But um, they were just learning as they were going as well. You mentioned relationships there. And I, I was wondering, you know, um, with uh, Nintendo kind of releasing games and you releasing games on Nintendo systems, were they a bit stricter than others? Uh, were, were others a bit lax or, or, or what were the kind of rules like? Almost chopper attack. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I did a lot in 64. They they all, I'm trying to, so between the big three, Sony, uh, Microsoft, Nintendo, well, and Sega at the time, I think was probably bigger than Microsoft. Xbox hadn't came out yet, but they all had, Sony was probably the hardest. They, they would do a concept submission. So before you had the right to even develop the game, they had to approve a concept. Then they developed it. Then they had to approve it to be, manufactured on on their discs etc nintendo i think was less strict up front but all of them were very good at a quality blur um and making sure the bugs you know were found they did their own some layer of testing um and they they would come back i you know i can't remember specifics on which ones um probably mostly sony fix this fix that before we approve it so they were all pretty serious about it um but depending where you were like Midway, I, I think there was a, a Mortal Kombat one out with a crash bug in it. And it got found, um, but it, it was we knew about it. There was Toys R Us ads, a million dollars a day penalty. That you know you hear about all this stuff, and they leverage those top level relationships to get approved. But they, they're all pretty serious. You mentioned uh, the PlayStation there, and you, you did the Midway. Cl- classic collections yeah. for them and um uh, i was wondering were they like run with emulation then and how how important was it to get them you know accurate and uh close to the original yeah i, I it depends on the game i think some might have been emulators if not a lot i think digital eclipse again all, all credit to them almost all my pc arcade classics or most any of them went through those guys they had the original roms they, they backward engineer them they ran emulators and it had to be one to if, if I was doing it, I wanted it one to one. Like that didn't feel right, or I, you know, we would try to get it as accurate as possible to the source. And, and I mean, at the time, I don't think this King of Kong, Donkey Kong, <laughs> you know, championships and all that stuff was relatively not happening, or relatively in the back behind the scenes. But we still felt the same way, you know. If you were on an arcade and you had a high score and you felt it and you had patterns. Pac-Man patterns, we we would make sure that that you know that the the games that we were shipping were the same as at least as close as yeah, we could. Yeah, I, th- I think it's uh, so important that you know uh, making sure that there's like no lag or or you know keeping that pace and uh, the same speed as as the original game would have. That's right, and that's what I said earlier. So I think at some point PCs, you know, frame rate, everything got cranked up, and we'd have to limit, but reduce reduce it all down to the right you know, speeds and frame rate for that to make sure it's all right. And tried, like I said, one-to-one as close as we could. Oh, uh, a title that came out back then was uh, 
a quite uh, underrated character, uh, Gex the Gecko. And, uh, you know, he originally came out on the uh, 3DO and uh, re- really interesting uh, uh, kind of groundbreaking title that was. That's right. Did you, did you think Gex was underrated? I, I do. So that was an interesting, because again, we got the rights from, I think, 3DO or at the time. And there was people on the other side of the fence I knew. So I was like, oh, okay, you know, it was that and Pandemonium. I, I produced both of those at the same time. I, and I, I liked Gex. I, I, I was actually a little bit like released. It didn't do all that great. I don't remember what the numbers were, but I remember somebody saying, well, it's a gecko. It won't do well in Japan because they're, they're cockroaches. I just couldn't understand. I, I just saw, so yeah, I do. <laughs> I do think it's a little underrated. I'm not sure why. I thought it was a cool character and a fun game. Well, we've, uh, We've got to mention Pandemonium then, because that, that that was a really interesting title. That kind of two point five D, you know, um, you had three D, and it was it was still kind of a, a side scrolling platformer. And um, what was the development like around that title then? Pandemonium was easy, actually. Uh, there was a producer over there that I worked with closely, Carolyn, and I recall it went so smooth that Gex was less smooth. Pandemonium smooth. I spent more time trying to figure out problems on Gex, and I realized it wasn't about the product on this. The, my lesson I learned on these was more about spend more time with the quality people. <laughs> Just don't overlook them, you know, because it was it was a smooth process. It, you know, we were I, it was porting plus I think we did a, some special content for the the hardware manufacturers would want. Hey, you're not just going to port it; do something special. It all went really smooth on, on Pandemonium. So I really, you know, for me, I remembered more about Gex because I was going through some approvals and some contract stuff, and it was just a pain pain in the ass. And I looked back and I go, "Mom, I should have spent more time on Pandemonium because that one was a joke. Yeah, I I loved it. Um, You know, it it came out over time when there was lots of, like, violent games and stuff, and it was just this kind of uh, family-friendly, fun kind of title. Yeah, I mean, we would do things at E3 um, or, you know, any kind of press events. I, you know, occasionally they'll con me into getting onto some interview or, or something, <laughs> something like this. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not the best public speaker, but yeah, I would attend those now and then. Uh, honestly, sometimes when those events happen, it's I, I prefer just hanging out with some of the, the dev team and just keeping on a quiet side. You kind of uh, were doing something that we nowadays call uh, demakes, which was, uh, you know, kind of cutting down games and uh, putting them on, on the Game Boy Color. What what were the tough decisions that you, you had to do back then? So I going back, I, I, my memory not be serving me well. Um, like, I think I worked on a Mortal Kombat and a 720. I'd already done the PC and other ports where I knew what one-to-one was. And I couldn't do that on the Game Boy Color. I felt at the time I was doing the game and the hardware at disservice. There were times management, it was a management. Like, hey, it's a smaller system. It's a smaller budget. And I'm like, it doesn't work like that. And it was, I really feel like I missed an opportunity to create great content on the Game Boy, Game Boy Color, uh, because we were trying to cram some of these you know, known IPs and using existing code bases. And um, yeah, to me, it was one of the, I did a disservice to the hardware, I think, you know, if, you, if I want to be honest, not that I had much control over budget or, or any of that, but I just felt like some of the quality could have been better. The 
Xbox 360 was kind of a an interesting console. You know, it had um, Xbox Live Arcade and it kind of embraced some of those older older games and older titles. Uh, what what did you think of it? And did you see it as a, a kind of home for some of these older titles? Yeah. That when Well, when we started first talking to Xbox at the time, Midway had relationships with all the hardware manufacturers. So as PS2, PS1, any of that new hardware, we received an allotment of dev kits first. So I remember first looking at the Xbox and then at the time it was the promise of PC compatibility. Oh, plug and play all the things I said earlier. And again, of course it wasn't as clean as all that. Their first controller was super large. It looked like a medieval yeah, you know, the, weapon, um, like a morning uh, star on the end controller. of the stick or something. <laughs> that, that was the one, wasn't it? Uh, it was huge. And so, you know, we, we looked at it and the, the, yeah, there were certain obvious things that we were thinking about, but at the end of the day, I, I think it was a step in the right direction for us from the ease of development as far as, you know, knowing it's uh, portable, right? Not not portable like carrying, but able to port easily. Yeah, you bought some of the uh, kind of older titles onto that system like uh, uh, Gunstar Heroes, Sonic and Knuckles, uh, Fancy Star 2, and uh you know shinobi and i was wondering did you have like extra features like the uh you know achievement system and um stuff like manuals yeah that i think it was starting to i mean if you're gonna say like taking that title to the game boy it, it was a lot more challenging on all levels when you're able to have it port a lot easier because of the pc architecture um it it opened up more opportunities for your development dollars to be spent on achievements and all these things that you just suggested so that was one of the big benefits um just yeah it wasn't plug and play like they promised or or it wasn't smooth as silk but it certainly was a lot easier once everybody started getting up to speed and again they had no submission standards and as i recall we would submit something they would fail it they would fail it for a big reason their reason wasn't in the, the standards then their next revision of the standards has the reason. So you're kind of growing with these companies as, as you're submitting as well. So, you know, it's, it's a learning, learning curve is ongoing. One title that I uh, absolutely adore for the 360 was Sonic Generations. What was it like working on that title? And, uh, you know, for, for such a iconic brand as well. You know, again, a great, great experience. I, I think, you know, through the years with the different IPs and, and you know, although I, you know, I, I didn't create it. I'm, I'm just part of the team that that's going to bring it. It's making sure you understand the importance that, that it, it is such an iconic title, you know? So for me, it was again, like the NBA story I said earlier, this is another one of those moments where you're like, don't, don't mess this one up. This is important. So it, it was, it was another good experience. What did you think of that? method of you know flipping back to the uh original old school mode because i've i've seen so many titles that uh now use that and have like implemented it in into a lot of games it's kind of becoming standard well i think at the time we thought it was a, a good idea and so it, we, we decided to go with it but you always run the risk i guess you're gonna go back and and have something that's forward looking that the comparison is too obvious but you know, I think it worked out. And uh, Sonic Generations has kind of led to, like, uh, you know, the fantastically successful Sonic Mania. 
And um, I was just wondering, out of all the titles that you've uh, worked on, is is there anything that's uh, you know been your favorite or really stood out? I, you know, and I, I do get asked this a lot when they when they find out oh, how long you've been doing this, how many hits. I'm gonna go. I'm gonna say NHL hits might be one of my favorites, and I give you a little context for me. It's team team based. Like after you finish a game, you work closely with these people you know, your team, whatever the product is still to this day, how do you feel when you're done? You know, A, you know, you can have this successful game, but you don't like anybody to work with. To me, that's, that's, that's not good. NHL hits was a rare, rare uh, situation where, you know, everybody was aligned. The product came out. It was a great relationship with the developer. It was a hit game, you know, and it was just fun the whole time, the whole way through. Um, you know, you go through ups and downs through my career of that type of process. There are certain places where I'm like, man, I, it's a great IP, but that it's not working with this team that I, I don't enjoy being around every day. Um, so leaving SSI and I didn't know what I had, you know, at the time, oh, this is gaming. This is the way everybody is. I, SSI was always, and almost to this day, a benchmark of how, I like to work with people, um, and it it takes a while to find that um, kind of dynamic. And NHL hits was one of them. So, yeah, there's there's a lot, there's a lot. I mean, I could this is how much time you got, but but I think it's the personal stories that matter to me as much as the game. So when I when I start talking about that topic, and finally, I was wondering uh, what what have you been up to, and uh, uh, what what are you working on nowadays? Yeah, I started at Amber. Uh, about three years ago, I'm a game director. Uh, since then, I've worked on Super Spy Ryan, uh, Mobile, uh, Tetris Beat, um, which again, working on old classic <laughs> Tetris, right? I'm still doing the old classics. I'm currently working on Temple Run uh, 3, and yeah, the game director yeah, at Amber. Um, Tetris, well, Tetris is an absolute classic, isn't it? Uh, you know, people are still loving it today. And I was, I was just wondering, actually, have you uh, seen the movie? No, I haven't. Yeah, uh, That was a big part of when we were working on it. We were timing, you know, uh, releases around it. And I've, I've seen the preview. I haven't seen the movie yet. It's sometimes I, I have to say, I you know, at times I don't enjoy watching get movies related to our industry. It, it's... I don't know why. I, I think as much as I enjoy it, I try to separate it a little bit. Like it's a ref I use entertainment as a reference point, not as a not not as like I'm not a spectator. Sport. Yeah, I I guess if you're in it, uh, you know, it's it, it's not as entertaining as it is being on the outside. Yeah. It's, well, also, you know, Tetris beat it. There was a lot of work done on that. It it turned out exactly what we wanted. I don't think it's it, you know we didn't hit critical success. I think if you don't like EDM music. And Tetris, I mean, you're not probably going to get into it, but it, it is certainly a fun game. But again, like having worked on it for a year, year and a half, and then seeing a movie about it, kind of like, yeah, I've had enough. <laughs> I'll see you next year. <laughs> well, Brian, it's uh, been a fantastic chat about your uh, personal history, and I hope you've enjoyed it. No, I did. Thank you so much. Memory lane. Now, <laughs>